Welcome to episode 45 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Sylvia Rotfleisch and Mara Martindale. Sylvia is a certified auditory verbal therapist, educator, and audiologist. She has devoted her career to providing therapy to families with children with hearing loss and teaching and mentoring other professionals. Trained at McGill University with Dr. Daniel Ling, Ms. Rotfleisch worked at Montreal Oral School for the Deaf, House Ear Institute, and Echo Horizon School before starting Here to Talk at heretotalk.com, her own private practice. In addition to working with hundreds of families over more than 35 years, Ms. Rotfleisch has taught at the University of Southern California, California Lutheran University, and led international master classes. She lectures, consults, and mentors for school districts, helping to update their professional staff and also mentors for LSL certification. She has presented at a wide variety of workshops and conferences. Ms. Rockfleisch has also served a variety of committees, including for the A.G. Bell Academy for Listening and Spoken Language and the Task Force on Principles of Auditory Verbal Therapy. Mara Martindale is a certified auditory verbal educator. She received her doctorate in educational leadership from the University of Southern California in 1999. She is the founder and director of the Master's Degree of Science in the Education of the Deaf and Credential Program, and she is an associate professor at California Lutheran University in Thousand Oaks, California. She has provided guidance and support to families of children with hearing loss and listening and spoken language at No Limits for Deaf Children centers in Southern California for over 15 years. Throughout her 40-plus years teaching at numerous universities, Dr. Martindale has prepared hundreds of teachers of the deaf for schools and programs throughout the United States. She was a teacher and director of educational services at the John Tracy Clinic in Los Angeles for 26 years. It is also my pleasure to mention that Sylvia and Maura are the co-authors of Listening and Spoken Language Therapy for Children with Hearing Loss, a Practical Auditory-Based Guide, which is available from Plural Publishing in San Diego, California. It is my pleasure to welcome Sylvia and Mara to the Listening Brain Podcast. Sylvia and Mara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Would you mind introducing yourselves, maybe starting with Sylvia? Hi. Um, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting us. We're excited. And let's see, we 
wrote this book and are so happy to be sharing the information through mm-hmm. your podcast about it so that it can get out and hopefully help more people in the field. Uh, I have been in this field for a little over 35 years, I guess coming closer to 40 years. I originally trained in my graduate degree as an occupational therapist, something that not everybody knows about. My undergraduate was in occupational therapy, and I was really interested in working with children. And I decided it was time to get another degree. And I started looking around for a master's degree for a graduate school program. And lo and behold, I lived in Montreal, where I was born and raised. And at the time, Daniel Ling was doing his oral rehabilitation course at McGill University. And I stumbled upon the information on his course in the university catalog. And I decided I needed to go find out a little bit more about this. And I called the department and I set up an appointment with to meet with Dr. Daniel Ling. And for any of you who've ever met him, you can well imagine just once I walked out of that meeting with him, it was like my future was sealed. It was, there was no Mm -hmm. question. This is what I needed to be doing with the rest of my life. It was just, he was so exciting and interesting and he was really a pioneer in the field I had had some interesting experiences as an occupational therapist working with some clients who were deaf and had had a stroke and couldn't communicate because they couldn't sign with two hands, different things. And this just sort of kind of rounded that experience into an interesting thought process. And um, that was kind of it. So I did his program and I worked in a kindergarten classroom at the Montreal Oral School for the Deaf under Dr. Nan Ling, um, Dr. Nan Phillips. And then I uh, was recruited by Dr. William House to come to Los Angeles to provide therapy for the first initial children who were getting cochlear implants. So we up and moved from the snowy north to Los Angeles, and I worked at the House Ear Institute with Dr. William House and his team of incredible professionals. And from there went on into private practice and into teaching some courses at the John Tracy Graduate Program and at the Cal Lutheran Graduate Program and private practice, and now the kind of crowning glory is this book that we've written. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which we're, we will definitely talk about the book. So, Maura, your, yes. your intro, your, your okay. background. First of all, I'm from New York, so I really talk like this. <laughs> Just want that right out there. Um, um, I was teaching, uh, I have an undergraduate degree in history and elementary education. I was teaching general education in Northeastern Connecticut. And I had a deaf child in my one of my classes, a, a girl who was using spoken language. She used this these her hearing aids. She had a big body aid, and she had and the FM system was like two feet long, practically mm-hmm. the way around your neck. For those of you who remember those, and then uh, I in Connecticut and much much of New England, you are required to get a master's degree to continue teaching. You get so many years, you don't need it, and then you do. And so I, I a friend told me about the program at the 
the Clark School Smith College program. So I took a year and some months off and got my degree. And then I was recruited to come to the John Tracy Clinic. And I told my parents I was moving west. They thought I was I was talking about New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And New Yorker bring. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been, um, I was at the John Tracy Clinic for 26 years. Um, I did just about everything. I was the vice president of educational services. I was in charge of the correspondence course. At some point, I was in charge of the um, USC teacher education program. And then um, in 2005, I left John Tracy and I started a graduate program up here in um, Thousand Oaks in Ventura County. Um, and I um, to train and prepare teachers of the deaf for a, a wider region and areas that didn't have many teachers of the deaf, certainly none with spoken language backgrounds. So we started that and I retired um, last May. Wow. And, and is that program still going? Yes, it is. Uh, one of my former students um, took that position. I, I, I mentioned USC. I received my doctorate there um, in 1999. Awesome. So two California girls. <laughs> and uh, I, I am very envious of the weather, uh, having just uh, survived this Arctic chill that just came through. And uh, I hope you guys maybe didn't have to deal with some of that stuff. It was quite brutal um, being here in Ohio. So. You guys uh, obviously have known each other for a long time and been uh, friends and colleagues. And you have a new book that's really, as I look at it, it is copyrighted in the future, 2023. So uh, great book, wonderful book. So I guess the the question that I that <clears throat> I want to start with is why did you write this book? What was what's the need out there that you're trying to fulfill? Okay, I'll take that one. Um, we our vision was to create a textbook to mm-hmm. help in teacher preparation programs, primarily, but also SLP programs or any programs where somebody's going to get some um, knowledge about teaching to children who are deaf and hard of hearing, and to make it very practical and very therapy based. In other words, it didn't get to be a gigantic book about a lot of other stuff. We don't talk about you know all the different methods of communication. We don't talk about you know the anatomy and physiology of the ear. It wasn't one of those kitchen sink kind of books. It was very very focused on therapy because it really wasn't a very practical. You can pick it up and have a child at a certain stage, and it, we gave you lots of ideas and suggestions um, of what exactly to do, how to assess them, how to work with the parents. Um, as I said, there's a lot of stuff. When we, we sent this uh, initial book out for um, reviews where a publisher wanted to know um, from uh, professionals in our field what, what they thought of it. And people gave us lots of suggestions, mm-hmm. but it wasn't had nothing to do with us and what, what our, our focus. So we stayed true to our focus. And we actually told people, write your own book. <laughs> <laughs> this is ours. And this is how it's, it's going to look. You'll notice that sure. it's soft cover, and that's intentional, right. so that it's um, less expensive. Um, you'll see that it. Those of you who've seen the cover see this rainbow, and that aligns with the rainbow audiogram that Sylvia had created, mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. was kind of the mastermind of the thought about thinking of, of children's growth in therapy and in, in life and learning mm-hmm. spoken language in terms of stages rather than ages. Right. So we, we align that with her rainbow audiogram. And as you can see, it's uh, color coded so that if you have mm-hmm. a child at a particular stage, you can go right to that chapter. 
So that was uh, that was our vision. And, and it's awesome. an awesome vis- vision. So, Sylvia. Yeah, I mean, I've also, I've been mentoring for many, many years, even before mentoring was really a thing, because mm-hmm. yes, I've been in this field long enough. And when I graduated with Dan, he sent me forth and said, train more people and publish. So those were the kind of things that I knew, you know, I needed to be doing. So as I was mentoring, there were these people and it just seemed like they had so many gaps in, that's really noisy. You're picking all that up. No, I don't hear the noise. You're kind of getting weak. Your microphone's getting a little weak. But yeah, there's something happening out in the backyard. So let me go back to when I was mentoring, there were a lot of people that I was mentoring and I felt that they had so many gaps and they didn't know how to go from the theoretical knowledge to actually applying it into therapy room. How, you know, what, how do you play with the toy? How do you pick a goal that's appropriate for a child? How do you really figure out what to be teaching the parent? Um, how do you hand the therapy session over to the parent and work yourself out of the job and give that job to the parent? You know, it just seemed to be such a huge gap. And there was some need for something that was between the theoretical and a cookbook, something that Mm -hmm. was that bridge that took the theoretical and made it practical, that really helped a new therapist figure out what to do with this kid that they were going to see tomorrow and helped a therapist who'd been in the field who was possibly stuck with a child at a certain level, how do you get them? How do you, uh, what I've always called it in presentations, how do you push past that plateau? How do you figure out where they are, why they're stuck, and what are the skills that need to be accomplished and worked on to get them to that next stage? So also looking at stages that way, I felt really Mm -hmm. helped people to kind of propel the children through the progression of where they needed to be going and developing their listening and spoken language. And nobody had kind of taken some of these professionals by the hand and said, look, these are the appropriate goals for this child. This is not, you know, you're not picking goals for a three-year-old. You're picking goals for a child who has five words. So you've got, you know, you've got to think about the stage that they're at, they're at not the age. And so let's let's go back to what Mauro had mentioned was, you know, the the rainbow audiogram and then how you trans how both of you translated that into the the uh, ages stages, not ages paradigm there. The the, the way it's the way the book is structured. This Um, is Sylvia's baby. (laughs) So, you know, the first article that I wrote on speech acoustics was way, way back called, and it was called Soda Bottles and Submarines. Mm-hmm. And it's still an article that I think is on the Lissell Academy for studying for prepping for the exam. It was built on or written based on presentations that I had done over the years and also based on the way that I felt parents needed to understand the basic foundations of speech acoustics and how did that really translate to 
their child and why did they care about it and what was practical about it, not like what was university level, but how to make it very palatable and understandable and applicable to them. So right from the start, um, I was trying to show parents based on the their child's audiogram what speech features and what speech acoustics were across the audiogram. And then in workshops, this became what I call the DIY rainbow audiogram, where you did it yourself. And I would sit and do these work, stand and do the workshops, and I would give people blank audiograms and we'd pass out crayons and everybody would be coloring their um, mm-hmm. their audiograms and making their own audiogram. Um, when I did the speech detective course for hearing first, uh, their graphic artists said, okay, well, let's really make this gorgeous. Let's make this a beautiful rainbow audiogram. So you'll see when you look at it in the book, they're credited with the, the graphic production of it because it's just spectacular. But what this does is it lays out the speech acoustics on across the rainbow audiogram across an audiogram and it lets you know well you know the super segmental features are here they're low frequency if your child has difficulty with low frequency then you're going to expect they're going to have difficulty with the super segmentals how does that translate into speech how does that translate into language and as i was teaching the parents it became more and more apparent that professionals didn't know this so we you know, I've been doing this for hearing first as an as a preliminary introduction to speech acoustics and a more advanced speech acoustics. And when Maura and I started working on the framework for this book, we felt very strongly that speech acoustics was the first chapter and that parents were the second chapter because that was the foundation and that's where it really needed to, to be. And though when we, the publisher sent the book out for peer reviews, again, it's a very complicated process publishing a book. So this second or third round of peer reviews, they said, well, this chapter is very, very long. And we said, yeah, by design. (laughs) And then they said, but the feedback was, this chapter has made an incredibly difficult topic incredibly easy to understand and to then teach other professionals and to teach parents. Mm -hmm. So I think the beautiful graphic rainbow audiogram makes it feel very accessible and the book explanations build from foundation skills in that chapter, which we divide into three sections build from very basics to the much more complex aspects of speech acoustics. So that kind of was one of the key foundation stones for this book. And it was the first time that the rainbow audiogram has been published. And as we were playing around with the design of the book, the, you know, the colors of the rainbow just sort of became the overarching look and seemed to be a nice, organic kind of transition and complement and view of how the book can be presented. So mm-hmm. it's exciting to watch all that happen. Yeah. I, I think it's structured very, very well. It's, it's really neat how, how it's all come together. 
Yeah, I was just going to add, it's on page 31, is the rainbow audiogram, for those of you who have the mm-hmm. book. Also, in addition to all the wonderful lists and graphics that we have in there to help people understand this complex topic, we also have a vid- a p- videos that accompany a, a companion website with lots of um, it, wonderful information. And if you're uh, a university or college professor who's going to tackle speech acoustics, this is the chapter you want. And you want to use many of the tools in the companion website, such as quizzes and PowerPoint slides and things to help you present this information. So it's not just the book. It comes with a lot of other stuff. Right. And and I was going to mention how robust this uh, the, the resources that you guys put together in support of the book, how robust the materials are, which is great. Uh putting on my professor hat, it's it's really great when you, you can have as much ready-made, uh, and as you guys know, you've all lectured and done have to put presentations together and do all those things. When it's pretty much done for you, it's always a relief. And then you can kind of tweak here and there or add more to one component or another. But you know what I hate is when I get some textbook and they say, oh, go to the companion website. And it's blank slides. They have the title of the book and chapters laid out, but they did it that way. So you can put your own words to their material. Well, that doesn't help me a bit. <laughs> uh, no, it so. doesn't. As a, and as a, somebody who started a program, um, having to, you know, a lot was, we had to start from scratch, but Sylvia and I both had a lot of presentations we had already done together. We had done separately. So we really, um, it accompanied the book, not just PowerPoint slides, but I say there's quizzes, sure. there's discussion questions, there's videos for everyone mm-hmm. on the stage. We have different, um, Sylvia working with different parents, emphasizing specific stages. So like right. you said, I think the word robust is, is accurate. That This is absolutely, mm-hmm. if you're starting out as a new professor with the, the topics such as speech acoustics, this is, we did it for you. It's yep. a course, it's a course in a book. Yes. I mean, it, it's all there, you know, it's, and that's what we wanted. And we know also sometimes people coming in to ch- teach courses, you know, they're not university professors and they're not there full time and they're scrambling, you know, to get everything together. And we had done all this and mm-hmm. done all these quizzes and done these courses and done these PowerPoints. And we right. really want to share it with our colleagues and we really want this information out there so people can be using it and improving the outcomes for the children that we're working with. So it's all there. I mean, it's intended Mm -hmm. to all be there. And when you're teaching the course, you can pick up your creativity and take it wherever you want, but it gives you a really nice foundation. The videos, there's guiding questions so that you can look at a video. And if you're teaching a course, you can look at the video with the students and break the students Mm -hmm. up into groups and have discussions or look at this child and decide, you know, which topics or which discussion questions different groups are going to answer or take a look at a video and make this a, okay, let's pick goals for this child. Let's look at what strategies are being used. There are all these guiding questions and a lot of different ways that you can use this material. But if you need to just come in and teach a course, it's all there for you. You know, the book is there, you go to the website, the students have access to materials. And as a professor, you have access to, as Maura and I were saying, you know, the PowerPoints and quizzes and guiding questions for discussions. Um, So several people who we know who are teachers and professors in the field have said, 
this is the book that I've been waiting all my career for. Where were you when I needed this 20 years ago? Things like that. So that's made it feel really validating. And we're so hopeful that other people will be able to use this and kind of help move the field and train professionals so that they can bridge that gap from theoretical to practical. Right. Well, I think it will have that kind of impact. I, I, I'm with you. I hope it does. And I hope more and more people hear about the book and, and definitely start using it. So let's talk about the stages and not ages. So let's, what's the concept behind that? I think Sylvia kind of laid it out earlier. The idea is instead of thinking, okay, the age of the child and trying to catch up the child to their chronological age in terms of listening a spoken language, you needed to think of them more holistically and to look at certain characteristics, get your assessment together, get your information, say, okay, this is the stage. And each chapter of the book that goes goes through the stages, charting that's chapter six, is the pre-linguistic stage, single words, word combinations, childlike errors. You get to a competent communicator. We also have a chapter on advanced communicators. Very often, we have some wonderful students and children who are talking away. And however, we want to keep pushing the envelope a little bit. We want to up the ante, as we call it. So we have an actual chapter on advanced communication and what to expect for that. So the idea is to move the students, the children, and their parents through the different stages, and that they could be a late starter. They could be an English learner. They could have an additional disability. It doesn't matter. We're not racing towards ages. We're moving them from stage to stage to get all the way to advanced communication. So I think, so, yeah. And some of the development and the thought process behind comes from, as I was telling you, I used to be an occupational therapist. Mm-hmm. And in occupational therapist, therapy, we always talk about sequence of development And every task that we learn from birth to adulthood, we have to go through a normal stage of development, you know, the sequence of development, like babies at six months are not expected to walk. Mm -hmm. So why is a child who's three years old, who suddenly gets a cochlear implant or suddenly gets some sort of hearing technology, suddenly expected to be talking in three-word combinations. It's not appropriate. We have to really be looking at re going through that process of the sequence of development. So before that baby is expected to walk, they need head control. They need trunk control. They need the balance so that they can sit up and they've got that core strength. Then they need to learn to stand. These are all stages that we expect a baby to go through when they're learning to walk. Then they need to learn to stand. They pull themselves to standing. Then they need to learn to be able to balance without holding on to something on both legs. Then they need to learn how to balance on one leg. Then they need to learn how to be reciprocally moving their legs. They may have been doing reciprocal movement with crawling but they hadn't done it for walking. So that's something that we normally expect babies to go through. And some children with additional needs, as they're learning to walk, will have developmental delays and have difficulties. But we still expect them to go through the sequence in the same way. So, But somehow in our field, people didn't kind of look at it that way. It was like, well, you know, you're a three-year-old. You're working with a three-year-old. What do you do with a three-year-old? Well, you know, 
If you're working with a three-year-old who has no language, but is cognitively pretty bright and whatever, then you need to make sure you're pulling out toys or engaging the child at a cognitive level that's appropriate to them. But you can't expect a three-year-old who's just gotten hearing technology to talk in three-word utterances. You can't expect right. them to be counting from one to three. And I can't tell you how many people I have mentored and that's the goals they have. And I'm like, wait mm-hmm. a second. That's not right. what we're doing here. They have no understanding of serve and return. They have no understanding mm-hmm. of using their voice for communicative intent. They have no understanding of how to learn words. So those were all things that, I felt really strongly needed to be out there for people to to be incorporating into what they were doing. And we talk about it in the book and Maura was just talking about it also. You can be you can be working with a child in the prelinguistic stage who is 3 months old and is starting to do serve and return and using their voice and vocalizing and starts, you know, as they grow and age starts doing appropriate babbling development and things like that. But you can also have that three-year-old who you need to take back to that beginning stage and develop those foundation skills. You can have a three-year-old, a three-month-old, all working on the same goals, but as a creative therapist, you are going to figure out what's appropriate to engage that child. You're going to play with a different toy with a three-year-old than you are with a three-month-old, but your goals are still going to be the same. And those goals are in the book. They're in the chapter. They're, right. And the the design of the book was very, very to me going through it. I wanted people to be able to know that they were going to be able to find goals for each of the six stages. And the goal table was going to be the same numbered table in each in each chapter. So, you know, table, and I don't remember them offhand, but, you know, like the initial goals in table one, four are going to be, or whatever the content is in table four is going to be the same content in chapter chapter six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. It's all going to be the goals or that content for that stage. It's going to be the strategies you need to work through that stage. Every chapter is going to have that table and that list. Every chapter is going to have the goals for that stage. Every chapter is going to have that continuity of what you need to be teaching the parents. So it's just, it's there as a resource. And I'm hoping that people's books are just going to get like shabby and fallen apart because they're not going to be one of those textbooks that people buy or rent and throw out at the end or try to Mm -hmm. sell secondhand, because I'm, I'm hoping that these are going to be, um, really valuable tables that people are going to print out from the website or photocopy for them to, you know, and laminate and stick them on their walls or stick them in the kids chart as they're going through the different goals that they're working on with the kids. Right. And I can see all of that happening. Um, you, the way you're talking about this, uh, one of the things that, that I keep coming back to with my grad students, when I'm talking to them about all these things and I ask them, here's a child, this is what they're doing. You know, what comes next and you know all these blank looks you know and so i do several of those kinds of activities with them because my point in those is that you can't 
really understand atypical development if you don't understand typical development. Exactly. And so we we really stress that, you know, and 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 you do see students who've not had that language development course in a couple of years, you know, or had it at the undergrad level and and not as much as at the grad level. Think, you know, different things like that that have happened. And they're still deer in the headlights, you know. Um, I'm saying we we have to understand where the child is functioning and focus there. Don't worry about the age. Look at the you know the stage of development. So um, so um, I, I really like how you how you both have approached this, and I and I hope it's going to make uh, more sense to those. Uh, students that are in training, as well as professionals that are out there teaching it, as well as just, you know, professionals who need to understand that even more deeply uh, in their own practices, who can get a copy of this book, and and maybe things will make more sense to them as they read through it. So. uh, That's absolutely the hope. (laughs) (laughs) That's the hope. That's the hope. So, um we talked about the materials. So yes, robust materials available. Uh, it's designed that way. And you know, one of the things, the other things that I really like about the book are the sort of the case studies in terms of illustrating uh, what is do what is happening, and even some of the dialogue that goes back and forth. Um, and I've seen a couple other books do that from time to time over the years, and I think it really helps make it more even more real to the reader and uh, sort of putting them in the in that experience and and really understanding what's going on was was that sort of a, a part of your thinking from the beginning is to have those kinds of case studies absolutely <clears throat> um sylvia had a, a if you, from her private practice had a wealth of case studies and the actual video lots of, of um, material to draw from that she could present the, not not just what the parent and the child are doing, but also what the therapist would be saying to the parent or to the child to move them along to to demonstrate some of the strategies that that we incorporated. So, um, with the case studies were definitely part to be included in each of the chapters um, on the stages, with the idea that the same deer in the headlight look that I get, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and having you know kind of read through it, and that's actually had people take roles and say, okay, you're going to be the therapist, you're going to be the child, you're going to be the parent, um, right. so that they can sort of role plays. You can, mm-hmm. and, and that that's a very powerful tool when you're teaching. That's right. Maura and I have, as you mentioned before, at the beginning, we've we've known each other and worked together in a lot of different capacities. And at one point, we were doing workshops together for school districts, and one of the things that we did was kind of. I think the brainchild or or kind of the practice for putting this into the book. So a lot of the things that we did over the years together, little did we know they were things that were going to get translated into how we put, you know, into the book and how do we make the book the most effective we can, the most effective tool for the people who are using it. So in these workshops, Mara said that, you know, I had all these case histories. So I, these were literal case histories that I took. So, so, you know, I would pick one child and I had these comprehensive reports that I would write on the child, you know, every six months. And so I had these case reports on a child over the course of 
two, three, four, five years, depending on the child. And when Maura and I would go in and do these workshops, we would give these case, the, these reports to the different groups, and we would have them do an analysis. We would have them write the goals. We would have them talk about how they would do intervention, what activity they might pick, how they would talk to the parent, all these sorts of things. And that was kind of the, the foundation skill or not skill, the, the foundation tool for them to be thinking and really brainstorming and coming up with their ideas. And then after they came up with them, you know, the, there would be five different groups who presented the same child over course of time and what were the goals and the audience would participate. Was that an appropriate goal or what would you differently? And then, okay, well, let's see what happens the next six months with this child and have that conversation. So right. that was part of what we were doing in the book. So these are all actual reports on actual children. I did not make up any of this. These were reports that I had from decades of doing work with these with the kids that I had worked with and actual test scores and actual goals and they were actual video transcripts. So I had all these video clips of children that I worked with and I went through and I transcribed sections of it so that you actually have what's happening like a script in that therapy and you know what toy they're playing with and what the mom says and what the the kid says and how the therapist then says okay did you see what he just did there how did he say that and it kind of breaks down and in that script Hmm. I then go through an analysis saying okay in this little section what goals do you think were happening? And I explained to people, what are the goals that are happening? And we would do that in the workshops also. So every single chapter has a report on a child, a case history, and then a transcript of an appropriate therapy session or an actual therapy session that was done with that child. And the therapy session is analyzed to look at what are the goals that are being worked on at different points in that um, session, in that section of the therapy session. So So you're bringing uh, the reader right into everything that happened, sort of the, the, the actual, in a sense, you know, current therapy that's happening in that point, at that point in time, and uh, in the book, you know, it's like a, it's you're, you're reading it, but you're you're living it in a sense. You're you're right there with the parent, the clinician, everyone, the, the child, of course. So it, it makes it even more real to me as I read through it. Um, makes it all come together very nicely. Shows the application of all of it. Yay! Sylvia, <laughs> <laughs> I know is what you're after. Sylvia also mentioned um, the videos and mm-hmm. uh, and the case studies are a chance for the um, reader to understand the activities. Because one of the hard things, as you know, Todd, is teaching how to write a lesson plan for a therapy session. I mean, it seems and, and in detail and not just right. put play with Play-Doh. <laughs> <laughs> Where right. in addition to the goal that you can just take right from the book, there's good examples of how you can use the simplest activities that you don't have to use tabletop activities. We mm-hmm. emphasize activities of daily living. 
that you're going to go into the kitchen and cut up some fruit for a fruit salad. You're going to actually um, sort some laundry, put dishes away, do things that cook something, prepare mm-hmm. something. But um, any room in the house, uh, Sylvia often uses her dog. To be, <laughs> the dog who's, gets to be because many of these families have dogs and, and, and can, who's it, sleeping it, right it, on the floor behind her. Right. The tanner's there <laughs> doing his and, it, and so the, the activities are modeling for the parent what to do at home as opposed to just simply thinking, oh, I have to go out and buy these cards with these letters on them or pictures on them or something. No, you right. don't. You have an entire refrigerator full of food <laughs> or right. a pantry. Use the stuff you already have, and then it's culturally appropriate. You know, what one family cooks is not what everybody else has in their pantry or in their refrigerator. So talk about the foods and the and the utensils and everything that you're going to use. So activities of daily living are a very important part of the activity planning. Yeah, and that comes exactly. that comes back to my base as an occupational therapist. As an occupational mm-hmm. therapist, we always used to say that activities of daily living are our bread and butter. I mean, that's the foundation of what we do. In occupational therapy, if somebody has a stroke, they still need to be able to do their activities of daily living. They still need to be able to feed themselves and dress themselves and things like that. And then it occurred to me that, you know, this is what we do with kids. And that's the natural course of everyday activity. And by empowering the parents to be playing and interacting with their child through activities of daily living, then we're not making them scared that they have to sit down and do therapy with, you know, and think that they have to go by this, you know, this is the game that Sylvia played with, or that, you know, therapist played with this week. So like, I need to go find it. You know, it's like, getting your kid dressed, you know, how many we talk in the book, and I always talk with parents about, let's talk about the activity of daily living, you know, like, how many times are you going to say a word during the course of that activity? And that activity happens how many times during the day, and how many repetitions, and how many days of the year, and, you know, we have a formula, and I just in therapy, that's what I do, I go through this with parents, and I usually you know, we usually agree on eating food, you know, and we go, okay, let's talk about meals. So how many times a day does your kid eat? Usually Mm -hmm. three meals and one or two snacks. Okay, five times that makes the arithmetic really easy. Okay. And let's say, you know, you're not only going to say one word, but let's think about one word that's a target. So maybe it's the word more while you're feeding your kid, you know, this little baby and you're feeding the kid during the meal or whatever it is, how many times do you think you could say that word more? We usually negotiate. We have that conversation five, 10. I go, okay, well, you know, you think you can do a 10? Let's do 10. That's easy because then, you know, it's, it's five times a day and it's 10 times every meal. So it's 50 and that's just in one day. You know, and then that means in the course of a week, you've done that word 350 times. And the parents just become so empowered by that and realizing that I'm feeding my kid anyways. I don't need to be doing therapy. I'm in giving them the language of everyday life. And then I think it's so incredible when the parents come back and they start saying, you know, the words that my kids learning are, you know, it's not the word that I thought 
he was going to say, or she was going to say, or that I thought I was teaching him, you know, but it's the word that happened in, you know, when I get the, you know, when I wash their hands, because they probably wash that kid's hands 20 times a day. And it never occurred to me that, you know, that was all, <clears throat> all the language that they were going to be spewing out at some point. And it's this revelation. First they were empowered and then it's the, it really worked. Right. Right. And nothing uh, breeds more success than seeing the success. Right. And so when parents right. see it happen, they want to keep doing it. So it's, you know, it's, as we all know, it's, it's, they, you know, there's all the input in the beginning before the child starts doing something and they start having those second thoughts. Is this really working? Do I need to really do this? And then suddenly once the child starts responding, um, then you got them hooked. Um, and and they never, I mean, most of my parents, they, they're hooked from that point on. And it's like, oh, it does work. Uh, they, they're repeating things back to me now or saying, you know, or labeling things. So it's always exciting. Well, I think the book is great. And so what I wanted to do is just take a few minutes to ask you about a couple other things, if you guys are okay with that. Sure. sure. So you both are in California. Uh, great state. However, there's some recent legislation about uh, the use of uh, certain communication methodologies for kids who are deaf and hard of hearing. So I want to get your input on that, if you don't mind. Uh, who wants to take that, Mara? Or I, I can start with it, okay. sure. Um, actually, the Los Angeles Unified School District, Los Angeles being the largest school district, second largest school district in, in the country, had uh, their school board has just had, have developed their, their policy is that all birth to three, the parent infant program will be American Sign Language. So they're going to have, you know, no, because they realized the cochlear implant was a game changer. They realize mm -hmm. how many young parents who are not afraid of technology are go and have concede the benefit of this that this is going to be and then they meet all these people. It's been okayed for um, for children as young as two since 1990. So we have plenty of young adults now who grew up with cochlear implants as examples, and they can mm -hmm. meet them. Um, so that people in um, if you're deaf um, culture kind of person, you can see the handwriting on the wall. So mm -hmm. the way around that has been to talk to unknowledgeable legislators. And California, yes, is a great state, but we're leaving it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the process of moving out to Arizona. Um, and it's not so much that, there's many other reasons. But mm -hmm. certainly um, the school, there are many uh, training programs here in the state, preparation programs, credential programs that mm -hmm. are completely ASL. There's voice off, the, teach, the professors don't talk, they only sign. And, and so they send out these groups of teachers, uh, new therapists and new teachers who have don't know anything. And they basically told them, oh, that method doesn't work and all the cochlear implants are broken and they don't work. And, and then they get out there and they see all these kids with cochlear implants. So the, um, many of the students who had a, a sort of deaf studies undergraduate degree, completely in ASL, suddenly get out into the real world. And they actually, when they came to interview for my graduate program, I'd say, what are you doing here? You're, you, you're, your complete background is American Sign Language. And they say, oh, yeah, we know, I know that now. Now I've got to learn this other stuff. I've got to like, turn, learn how to teach listening and spoken language because all these kids can hear. 
So these young teachers, are it's not just young parents, these are young new teachers, and they're not afraid of technology either. So yes, it's, it's going to be difficult, um, but time will, parents will roll right over this stuff. And it, yeah. it's actually, it's going to be a boon to private schools and therapists. And so yeah. I was, I made a mistake. It's not statewide. It's just in, in the one district, which is the largest district. Yeah, but there are some other districts that are doing the same thing, and they okay. constantly lo- um, lobby Sacramento to to have this, what you're just talking about statewide legislation that mandates American Sign Language for all children with heart, who are deaf and hard of hearing. Well, I, I remember visiting uh, Los Angeles School District, and uh, back in well, 20 years ago now, when I was at AG Bell, but there was a program there that I went and and spent a couple of days with with Bridget, um, and it was focused on spoken language and they had the kids with implants and uh, it was one of the school programs that uh, the Obercotter Foundation supported and, you know, trying to be a model program for the district. And um, so did all of that go away or did it just. Uh, no, I think there's part of the, part of this is the long-term perspective and more and I, and you both been in this field long enough to see mm-hmm. how the pendulum swings mm-hmm. and right. When I came to Los Angeles 38 years ago, uh, and I started working at the House Ear Institute, and we started looking at, look, you know, finding placements for children in the mainstream who were learning to speak and going and fighting in IEPs and stuff. The pendulum was very much sign language. These kids aren't going to talk. This is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Cochlear implants don't work. And that was in the infancy of of cochlear implants. Well, you know, over the past few decades, cochlear implants have become so effective, a tool that it's really just changed the entire landscape. And I think, as Maura said, you know, the writing is on the wall. And it has really swung to listening and spoken language. And to the extent in California, certainly, and in Los Angeles and in LA Unified, they have been hiring auditory verbal therapists and listening and spoken language specialists and promoting that. And the vast majority of children who have who are deaf and have hearing loss who are in the school district in LAUSD are actually in the mainstream. There's a very small number only in one school where they are using sign language and those are voice off um, ASL programs. And it's a very small portion, but those as ironic as it seems, those professionals, though they are voice off are trying to be very vocal (laughs) about promoting sign language and ASL. So it's really been an issue. And I think it's going to come down to law. It's going to come down to legal issues and the way that the program is going to be theoretically presented to parents is going to be as a package deal when the parents come into their IFSP or their IEP. And that's a predetermined decision and that's not going to fly. So it's it's already starting to hit the fan. So I think that's what we're going to see. And parents are savvy, you know, even mm-hmm. parents who don't speak English, you know, who are, you know, they're still surfing the internet, they're finding other parents, they're figuring this out. So they may go into their first IFSP or their first IEP and get 
completely hoodwinked and squashed into this program, but they're not going to stay there and they're going to figure it out very quickly. And it's, you know, we've done some wrong things in our field also, you know, like if you start thinking about when we Mm -hmm. started working with families who were speaking a different language and we said, Mm -hmm. no, 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 you need to speak English to your child. Well, this is a very similar parallel. Like we know now that parents need to speak their natural language to their child because that's how they're going to get immersed in a full language and learn a language and learn how to use spoken language. It's the same parallel. I mean, we are not going to be able to immerse a child in a full language. That's not the native language of the home. So if you've got a family who's speaking Spanish, and now they're being told they need to sign to their child. And in the meantime, they as a family are trying to also learn and assimilate into a society in English because their child's need, need their child or children need to go to school in English. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this just doesn't really make sense. And those parents are figuring that out. So I think it's going to be maybe some ugly legal in the courts kind of lawsuits that kind of answer this or the powers that be are going to have to figure out that they can't necessarily force a decision in an IEP or an IFSP that they need to present the option. So it's quite contentious and I guess time will tell. Yeah, it's it's that hundred years war that we keep fighting over and over again, right? Right. That's what Ling described it, or someone described it as the hundred years war of the different methodologies. Um, so as we start to wrap up, what advice would you guys give to beginning professionals who are interested in doing this, uh, interested in listening in spoken language, uh, or Another way of putting this, if you could go back and 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 you could tell you could talk right now to your twenty five year old self about getting into this field, what would you what would you tell them? Um, it, I, I tell them you're you're never going to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> um, one of the things that um, many uh, young teachers tell me that they didn't think was going to be as hard as it was was actually dealing with parents' feelings and dealing with their colleagues, um, that that the political situation in, in schools, but we also have a chapter in the book on working with parents' feelings. And I, I'm very, very blunt with my students, graduate students, there are going to be some very powerful feelings that are going to, that you're not going to avoid. You're not going to have everybody's rainbows and smiling and roses all the time. Their parents are going to come in angry. They're going to be saying, oh, he can hear perfectly. I don't have to put those things on his head. They're going to go through all kinds of stuff. And it's not going to go away. And you have to have some tools to deal with deal with that. And we have something that we put in the book called Enough. And that's that being empathetic, non-judgmental, mm-hmm. um, unconditional, and feeling focused. And talk. How, how can you talk to a parent when they are seem to be so angry? Instead of just saying or in denial, well, just just move on. And that's often like back to the ASL community. They're often saying, "Well, they would just sign. They're in denial that their their kid needs this, and blah blah blah." 
it's, it doesn't matter. Parents are where they are is where they are. And you've got to, you've got to be ready for that. You are good to, and in one way, it's a compliment that they think so highly of you to show their very raw emotions mm-hmm. to you because they feel that you are, are somebody I, I can talk to right now, or I can right. cry, burst into tears during a, a therapy session, or right. to say something about my, my fam, how my family's treating me, how my family's treating my son or daughter. Um, this mm-hmm. is a place that a, a whole area that I think was um, was not covered nearly when I was going to my traffic program. There was some focus on it, but not near enough. And so I try to infuse that very heavily into, into what I do with my students. So I think dealing with, and, and colleagues who are going to say all kinds of stuff like, well, I only have, uh, I've got 30 kids and, and you only have seven. So my job's harder than yours is that kind of stuff that goes on mm-hmm. in schools that, that they may not, you know, I, I'm get, we have to get it out there before they get out in the schools. I agree. Those, I agree. those are some areas I, I think have to be addressed. Very good. Thanks. So, when I think about myself as an initial, as a young, naive therapist, um, I think for me, there was a difficult transition as since I started in a school kind of setting, feeling like I'm the teacher and I'm responsible. When you become a therapist in that mode, really taking to heart and now we have the 10 principles of auditory verbal therapy. And mm-hmm. I was on way back decades ago on the committee that refined this. Mm-hmm. And I think as a professional, taking those principles and seeing how most of them, I think eight or eight of them are guide and coach the parents that that's really what this is about. That's how the child is going to be successful. I cannot, and no matter how extraordinary therapist you are, you cannot zap a child in one hour or two hours or three hours a week. And I, you know, I I say this to the people I'm mentoring and to the parents I work with that I don't zap a child. It's by my teaching you what you need to be doing seven days a week with your child. And so that you understand why I'm doing this, how you're supposed to be doing it, that you practice doing it with me and I can help you. And then you go home and you try it. And then you come back and you say what worked and what didn't work. Empowering Mm -hmm. the parents and giving that control over to the parents, I think is really hard for some of us as therapists. I think we need to not feel that the therapy session is the Sylvia and Jeremy program or it's really the it's the mommy and jeremy like they need to be doing the interacting and the parenting and i really need to be that background little i refer to it as the jiminy cricket you know Mm -hmm. on their shoulder going Mm -hmm. okay now ask him if he can do that right oh that sort of stuff really making sure that as a therapist in the session you are taking enough of a back seat to allow the parent to try what they need to do, to do it right, to do it wrong, to empower them and give them the control. I think that was a real uh, challenging thing for me to be able to do over the years. And, but once I did it, it, it was the most rewarding 
aspect of, of therapy, teaching the parents speech acoustics, teaching the parents the strategies to be using at home and making sure that they were doing and having them come back, as you said, Todd, you know, with this realization that they did it, that they really started their kid on the right track, that their kid's now talking, that their kid's now listening. Very good. So if you knew all that back in the day, wow. <laughs> when you started out, if we all knew those things that, that were, you know, so natural and so obvious now, back when we started out. So I, I wanted to just say, again, great book. It is available through Plural Publishing. Is it available like um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon? It's it's at Amazon and a lot of other booksellers have it. It's also available as an ebook. Um, mm-hmm. Plural is constantly giving discount codes, and so you can get it at a really good price. Um, internationally, people have been able to buy it through Amazon and other places. It's quite easy to find. Um, I think if you want it, you're going to find it. Shouldn't be hard. Well. Uh, I'll put uh, links to everything in the show notes um, for this episode so people who can look up the show notes and and get all of that as well. And just thank you guys for for joining me on the podcast today and and uh, best of luck and happy new year. Happy new year, Todd. Happy new year. Thank you so much for having us. It was really exciting to be here. And uh, I think you can hear from the way we talk about our book and our experiences in the field, how excited we are about it and and how committed we are to helping. Well, it's, it's obvious. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye. It was great connecting with Sylvia and Maura and I wish them the best of luck. And uh, I really appreciate them writing this new book because I think it's just wonderful. If you are a university faculty member, This is a great book to have uh, for a course. If you are learning about auditory verbal therapy or listening in spoken language and you want to learn more and see some very good case studies and, and how one would go about sort of thinking through goals and intervention and therapy, this is the book for you, especially with the added resources that are available on the Plural website. So please go check it out. I think it'll be worth your time and a little bit of money. So with that, uh, thank you for joining me as well on the podcast. It's been a couple of weeks and I'm trying to be more uh, consistent with the Listening Brain podcast. I've had a couple of things lined up, a couple of uh, interviews And for different reasons, we had to cancel and reschedule some other folks. But uh, I will be reaching out and getting new people scheduled and hopefully be on time in two weeks with a new episode. If you don't mind, please leave us a five-star review. That always helps us uh, to move up in the rankings and attract more listeners. That is always appreciated. So please, if you don't mind, that would help out a great deal. And say some nice things about us when you do that five-star review. Um, That helps as well. And until next time, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.